Well, hey, um, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we'll pick it up where we left off last time, which is verse 12. Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 12. And this is God's word. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to, the, up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in about one month, I'll have been on staff at Grace of Man for 22 years. Uh, That's a pretty long time. And I remember about 20 years ago, I'd just been here for just a short time, but enough time to kind of gain a little bit of experience uh, I was 34 when I went into ministry. So 20 years ago, I'm 36 years old, and I tell a new guy who's starting out, a guy in his 20s, uh, who's a pretty good word handler, and I told him, I gave him this piece of advice. I said, at all times, if you're going to preach effectively, at all times, the room needs to be about 8% afraid of you. And, uh, and you might think that a strange thing to say. And I think 20 years later, I was thinking about it as I was working on this. 20 years later, I would say that that percentage is probably still right. About 8%, you need to be about 8% afraid of me, or I'm probably not very effective. And what I mean by that is this. Foremost, I am not a publicist for God. I'm not trying to repackage God or repackage hard things in the scriptures and kind of trying to hide some things that uh, don't look that awesome in the brochure. They're a little bit scary. Okay, so you need to know that if you're going to open up this book, um, it's going to be, it's got its own edge, and I don't want to hide that edge, all right? And so in that respect, I want to be about 8% scary. But here's the other thing, and uh, this is what what I was really trying to get to this guy, is this. Um, when, um, When you're preaching, when you're teaching, when you're shepherding, when you're leading in prayer, um, when you're uh, leading in worship, you are, at that moment, the keeper of the assembly. You get it? This is an assembled people, and right now, I'm the keeper of the assembly. That's a very important thing, and you need to be about 8% afraid of me. What I mean by that is this. Uh, If I am praying, and I hear talking, I stop praying, and I wait for the talking to subside. And if it doesn't subside, I will force it to subside. If I am reading God's word and I hear, hello, I'm going to stop reading God's word 
And I'm going to make whatever the distraction is stop because you know why? Not because I think I'm some awesome guy and I, I deserve to be heard. I stop because I'm the keeper of the assembly. And you need to be about 8% afraid. And I remember um, a, a junior high trip years ago. And there was this one just tough eighth grader. Tough, tough, tough eighth grader. I mean, he just was about his third interruption. It was the first night I got up there to speak. About his third interruption, I stopped. And I said, listen, I said, uh, if you disrespect God's word again, I said, I will humiliate you. And I said, don't think that I can't and don't think that I won't. And you know what? He never said another thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he knew that I meant it. I will stop all things because um, th- this, is, uh, this is very important. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, this, that brings us to our main idea. I know you're going, that dude's crazy. Uh, but here's the main idea. God takes worship very seriously. Um, I've often said that when you read the scriptures, a hush should fall over the room, just like if somebody just said, let us pray. When you say, let us pray, everything's supposed to stop. Same thing, let us read God's word. Everything's supposed to stop uh, as, as the people assemble, all right? So if you don't believe me that God takes worship very seriously, then just look at Jesus. Um, and let's go to our first of three points, which is this. Jesus, not, sh- not so shocking zeal. <laughs> um, let's go to the passage. Verse 12, after this, uh, he goes down to Capernaum. The after this is uh, he's just uh, performed that miracle at a wedding. You remember that? He performed a sign, as John calls it. He calls miracles signs in the Gospel of John. I think there are seven of them. Um, So there's just been that wedding. Jesus had performed a a miracle at the wedding. He's turned water into wine. Also, concerning this after this, it doesn't necessarily mean exactly the next day in this this, uh, case. It just happens to me that uh, sometime later, this thing happened. He and his uh, family, his mother, brothers, disciples, uh, probably the disciples that he has uh, just acquired, uh, they go uh, uh, to uh, Capernaum and they stay there for a few days. Now, um, um, so yeah, he's traveling with his disciples and his mother and his, his biological brothers. Joseph at this point is probably dead. Uh, the last time he was mentioned was when Jesus was 12. Uh, we don't hear about Joseph uh, again after that. So he was probably dead um, already. But um, back to the passage, it says he goes down to Capernaum. Um, why does it say he went down to Capernaum? Especially when, uh, if this is Capernaum, here's the Sea of Galilee. If Capernaum is up here, um, um, Cana. If Cana's up here <clears throat> and he goes to Capernaum, Capernaum is actually, I don't know which way you're facing, is, is actually northeast. It's east and a little bit north. So why does it say he went from Cana down to Capernaum? The answer is this. Um, Cana is about 1,000 feet, and Capernaum is uh, 682 feet below sea level. He quite literally, they, they go over this little mountain ridge. They're, they're, it's the, it's, the, it, it's the, this little mountain ridge. They go down, and they go, it's really to the top of the Sea of Galilee is where Capernaum is. So they literally go down to Capernaum. Uh, and they stay there for a few days. But, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, why does it say that he went up to Jerusalem? Uh, well, first thing you need to know is it's about 120 miles to Jerusalem. So it's not just boom, boom, boom. It's uh, quite a little journey, uh, quite a, a number of days of walking, and they go to Jerusalem. But why does it say they go up to Jerusalem? Uh, because Jerusalem is at... Um, 
2,582 feet, 2,582 feet. And so literally they go up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's in the Judean hill country. So if you look at it on a relief map, I mean, it's surrounded by valleys. And when you go to Jerusalem, you literally go up to Jerusalem. Um, So so that's why they say that. Um, But all that said, John anchors this passage the way he uh, anchors uh, uh, several other places, which is with the Passover. Uh, he, mentioned, he mentions the Passover three times, the gospel writer John, and this is one of them. There's another one in chapter 6 where he, uh, is it 6? Yeah, where he feeds 5,000. There's another one uh, that, that really takes place over a number of chapters, chapters 13 through 21. It, the Passover is going on, and time just kind of slows down, and you get this insight into Jesus' mind and his dealings with the disciples uh, in, the, in the hours before the cross. So uh, amazing. But all to say, um, John hangs his narrative on the Passover. They're kind of like mile markers in Jesus' ministry. And that's important because what, what does the Passover bring to mind? What do you think the first readers would, would do if they read this and they're like, oh, the Passover. Hey, another Passover. Hey, he's in Jerusalem again. Oh, there's another Passover. What do you think they would be thinking, the first readers? They would go, oh, Passover. Yeah, that's where God's wrath was mollified, was, was, uh, was staved, was, was satisfied when the blood of a lamb gave covering and God passed over in, in his uh, judgment and wrath. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty vivid illustration, right? And so John uses that as the thread that runs through his narrative. So keep that in mind as we move through. John wants us to perceive Jesus in this saving way the whole way through. All right, so imagine Jesus going up to Jerusalem at Passover. Can you imagine? Uh, like he did his whole life. Um, he, he, you know, he came to fulfill all righteousness, which means he celebrated Passover. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, you'll, you'll, be, on a, you'll be on vacation, and um, you'll be driving through, like, central Illinois somewhere, and you'll see a sign that says Jesus was a vegetarian. Have you ever seen that? No? Okay, I have several times in my life seen a sign that said Jesus is a vegetarian. Guess what? That's not true. I mean, we know he ate fish, but guess what else we know he ate? We know he ate lamb. We know he ate it. And I, by the way, if you're one of those people like, ew, lamb. I don't know about lamb. Icky poo. Uh, the creator of the universe made it and uh, ate it. So uh, you might want to give it a try. It's delicious. By the way, it, it cracks me up. I'm straying from my notes, but it cracks me up. I just got a Whole Foods a- a- advertisement yesterday. And they're advertising beef brisket and broccolini for Passover. You can just pick it up and for Passover. I'm like, oh, the traditional meal, beef brisket and broccolini. Oh, faithful Jews, you know. Well, but all to say, Jesus celebrated Passover. He ate lamb. He is approaching Jerusalem in full consideration of what the Passover is. Can you imagine? I mean, we consider the Passover, we consider the Exodus story. I mean, you know that it's a feast, um, an annual feast that commemorates um, God's deliverance of the Egyptian people from captivity. He brings them out of slavery. He frees them from bondage so that what? So that they can worship me in the desert. That's why, so that they can worship me. He wants to collect a body of eagerly worshiping people. And so imagine Jesus going up to Jerusalem in full consideration of what Passover is, knowing what his duty is, knowing what his task is, knowing that he's ultimately the lamb. Can you imagine? And this is early on in his ministry. So um, he comes to the temple, 
and there's, there's, a, there's a scene. In verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, what was the big offense, ladies and gentlemen? Why was that, why was that a big deal? Um, you know, uh, it was hard to travel with animals, animal sacrifices. So you would come to Passover, and uh, it was hard to travel with an ox. It was hard to travel with a pigeon. Um, and so a business opportunity arose. They, they would go like, look, go, tra- do your travels. When you get here, just buy the sacrifice, uh, and that way you get a good one too. If, if you've got a blemished one, you could come here and get a, an acceptable sacrifice. And so a business arose. Same thing with money changers. Money wasn't like our money. Uh, it was, it was uh, silver. And uh, there was some money that had lots of silver in it and some money that didn't have as much silver in it. So it didn't really have true value. And so they would weigh the money. And if the silver wasn't good enough, what would you do? You would go to a money changer, and uh, they would change the money, of course, uh, for a price. And uh, you, if you've ever traveled abroad, you've dealt with money changers. I mean, you've got to change your currency into something else, and they do it for a price. It's a business. All right? So around, the, around Passover, a business arose. Um, People would sell uh, uh, animals to be sacrificed, and they would they would change money uh, so it would be of of, of legitimate uh, uh, means. All right. So what's the big deal? The big deal is this: it used to be outside on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives over here. Um, but then, out of convenience and laziness and schleppiness on the part of the uh, assembly keepers, the religious establishment who were probably in on the take. Uh, they let it come on into the temple. And now you've got this mayhem. Now where people are supposed to have orderly worship and consideration of Yahweh, you've got animals running around and money changers and prano pup machines and cotton candy. And, I mean, it's just circus atmosphere. And so Jesus comes up and see this, and um, he's quite upset about it. You see the problem? Is, is that it's a distraction to worship. You know, I said last week, uh, don't do a cartwheel in the aisle. That would be a distraction. In fact, we had a lady here a number of years ago, and uh, she would come to ladies' Bible study, and um, you know, she, I don't know if she had back issues or what, but you know, they, the ladies would be in Bible study, and they'd turn around, and she'd be doing the splits on the floor. You know, I'm listening. Don't let me distract you. Well, guess what? That's unacceptable. <laughs> you can't do that. It's a distraction from what we're here to do. Uh, and that's the issue. That's why Jesus is so upset. And so what he does in verse 15, he makes a whip out of cords, all right? So not, he's not flogging someone, flaying their back or anything. He makes a whip out of some cords, which, uh, by the way, you know, you've got to kind of gather some stuff together and probably took him a minute. And um, he makes a whip out of some cords, and he drives them out of the temple with sheep and oxen. He poured the, out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, now, don't get the idea that Jesus was standing over some poor guy just whipping him and whipping him and whipping him. No, the idea, it was probably mostly for the animals, is yeah, and you can imagine the mayhem that ensued. I mean, animals going everywhere, pigeons a-fluttering, money a-spilling, tables going over, people chasing their coins and stuff. I mean, it had to have been mayhem, and Jesus drives them out. And, you know, a couple things on this. People go, well, how could one man do that? How could one guy do that? I'll tell you what. Um, if that was happening in this room and you guys were doing it, I could drive you all out. I'd just grab her cane and I could do it. 
when you, when you when you stir up a hornet's nest, I think Jesus was a hornet's nest. He was a hornet, and he was buzzing around. He drove everybody out. Um, um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but we have to pause for a second. Uh, if if you're a, an astute Bible studier, you're going to say, okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record this scene where Jesus drives them out of the out of the temple. Um, but it's in a different spot, isn't it? You know where it is? It's after his triumphal entry uh, where he enters Jerusalem for the very last time. He is headlong for the cross, days, hours before the cross. He enters Jerusalem, and uh, at that point, he goes up to the temple, and he sees the money changers. He drives them out uh, in a similar way. Here it says he made a a, a whip of cords, but um, a similar story. All three other Gospels uh, say the same kinds of things. Um, So why is this one so far early in the Gospel of John? I mean, there seems to be a chronological issue. well, I think it's an easily solved chronological issue. Uh, scholars have debated, but it seems quite simple enough to me that Jesus drove money changers out of the temple two times. And uh, don't let that trouble your soul. Well, hey, wait a second. Oh, I don't know about that. I never... Well, you know, R.C. Sproul agrees with that. <laughs> um, and if you read the other three accounts, which I have, go, go and read them. You'll see that they are just stoked. They're just, they're just dynamic with the... Uh, with, uh, the, the shadow of the cross. I mean, they're just rich with the shadow of the cross. There's this urgency. And even though Jesus is angry here and he's doing this, um, there, there's not the same headlong urgency for the cross that's early on in his ministry. Um, one more thing about this before we, before we try to apply this to you. Um, it, it amazes pe- me how many people will see this and they'll be troubled by it. And they'll go, Jesus got angry? Wow, he was... Uh, he was filled with zeal, and he got angry. And uh, but, but that's just, can, can, you, can you get angry and not sin? Well, if you read the book of Ephesians, uh, you'll know we're told not to sin in our anger. Yes, you can be angry and not sin. That's, that shouldn't be a shock to you. But I know it's a shock to our culture, and it's especially a shock to our young culture, where you can't say anything that would get anybody's emotions aflutter. Um, yeah, Jesus was angry, but it was a righteous indignation. He was right to drive people out of his father's house. And his, his disciples don't go, ooh, red flag. Rather, they go, oh, yeah, zeal for your house will consume me. They see Jesus, and they see it as validation. They see it as righteous behavior. They see it as a validation of Jesus saying, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the God-man. I am the divine one. They see it as validation. So, um, how does this apply to you and me, ladies and gentlemen? Um, look at verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your father's house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69. And if you would just kind of flip over there for a second, if you would. Uh, Psalm 69, verse 9. This is where this is taken from. And uh, it's, it's only quoted uh, in, in the Gospel of John, the first half of the verse. Here's the whole verse. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. (laughs) Does this not describe our Jesus? Um, The issue is enmity with God. That's the issue. You know, later on in in, uh, chapter 8, 
Jesus is going to confront some Jews, and they're going to say, well, Abraham's our father. And he's going to go, uh-uh. No, he's not. He's not your father. You have a different father. Your father's the devil, and that's, that's quite a thing to say to a Jewish person. No, Abraham's not your father. Um, the, the issue is reproach against God. You don't receive Jesus. It's because you don't receive the God who sent Jesus. Um, so um, Jesus is, uh, claims to be the son of, uh, the, of God, the one who he calls father, my father's house. And uh, this is a claim of Jesus' um, divinity, uh, uh, a claim of who he is. All right, well, next point, Jesus' own authority. Verse 18, the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, just ponder that for a minute. Don't just blow by it. Um, There's this scene, he drives out the money changers. Um, His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews, the Jewish leadership say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Do you see what a potent uh, question that is? It's, it's basically a, 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 a closeted, a cloaked um, um, admission of guilt. They go, oh, okay, yeah, 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 it's true. I know, it's true. This is a disgrace. Of course, it's a disgrace. I mean, to have this going on in the temple uh, where it's supposed to be a place of worship, where the focus is supposed to be on God, and yet you have all these money changers, and it's just a, it's just a, a place of commerce. It should be out there, but we brought it in here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. <laughs> Give you that. But what gives you the right? What gives you the right to say? What gives you the right to come in here with a cord and, and, and do this and chase out the animals and tip over the tables and cause all this mayhem? What gives you the right, Jesus? You see, that's a vigorous question. Um, what sign do you show us is what they say. You know what they're saying when they say, what sign do you show us? They're like, hey, do a magic trick. Do a little magic. Show us that you're God. Show us that you're divine. Show us that you've got the authority to come in here and clear the tempo. temple. That's what we want from you, all right? And uh, Jesus gives them a mighty strange answer. They're perturbed. They say, yeah, what, by what authority? Do a magic trick. Show us that you're God. And here's what Jesus says. Very unusual answer. It's awesome. Jesus says to him, them in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And the Jews go, uh, it took 46 years to build it, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, that's a strange answer, isn't it? Uh, what sign are you going to give us? He goes, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy the temple. Three days, I'll rebuild it. What the hey? Well, it tells us in verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, you know, later on, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, why does this matter to you? Well, it matters this way. Um, the disciples remember, and uh, they start going, oh, 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 oh. Um, that's what this Christ is like. That, that, that's what Jesus is like. That's what God is like. Uh, that's what the Bible's about. That's why Christians do, do strange things like worship their God with their whole selves and, and so on. Um, uh, Jesus stakes absolutely everything on the resurrection. 
Isn't that cool? You know the Apostle Paul does it, but Jesus does too. He stakes everything on the fact that he's resurrected. If he's not resurrected, what difference does it all make? But even from the very beginning, he's talking about resurrection because he knows he's going to come and defeat death. Pretty amazing. And the issue then is, do you believe on him or do you not? The disciples, they remember back. They go, oh, that's right. He said he was going to destroy the temple in three days, rebuild it. He was crucified, buried, resurrected three days. We get it. Now we know what, what he, who he is. It, it validates who he is. We believe. Well, here's an illustration for you. I don't know if you know about C.S. Lewis's conversion. Do you know where he was converted? Anybody know where he was converted? You don't? Oh, well, it's, it's sometimes called the sidecar conversion. All right, so you know an old-timey motorcycle, Indiana Jones, Nazi, you know. Um, you got your motorcycle and you got your sidecar. And you get in the sidecar, you put your feet in the metal thing, and you're just, you know, you're not driving it. You're just in the sidecar of the motorcycle. All right, so C.S. Lewis, um, he, he, writes, he writes this to his friend about the night he was saved. He said, I've just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ in Christianity. I will try to explain this another time. My long talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a good deal to do with it. Isn't that kind of cool? Lord of the Rings. Um, nine days later, Lewis was being driven to Whipsnade Zoo by his brother Warney on a motorcycle. All right, so they're going to the zoo. C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney. And Warney's driving the motorcycle. C.S. Lewis gets in the sidecar and he's putt-putting along, and they're on the way to the zoo. The line had finally been crossed. I know very well when, but hardly how, this final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade Zoo one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Is that not awesome? The sidecar conversion. He's like, look, I could tell you where. I was in the sidecar of a motorcycle on the way to the zoo with my brother. When we started out, I didn't believe. When we got there, I did believe. Why does that transaction take place? I don't know. It's this great mystery, but it's true. I summon you, ladies and gentlemen, to do like C.S. Lewis. And I summon you to do like the disciples who remember, ah, zeal from his father's house will consume him. I remember what that says. I think that's who Jesus is. Oh, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, I remember what he said about destroying the temple and and rebuilding it in three days. Now I get it. Now I believe. Now I see who he really is. I summon you. I do it with all the the, uh, power of my 8% scariness. I summon you to receive the Lord of glory. I summon you to believe in the Christ. Uh, Jesus died to save sinners, um, and that sinner might just be you, friend. Last point, what is the temple? Um, The point Jesus is making when he talks about being raised in uh, in three days is, of course, about the resurrection. It's about his own body, okay? Um, The temple is his body. Uh, But Make no mistake, as I said, Jesus bets his whole ministry on his resurrection, um, absolutely everything on whether or not he rose from the dead. Paul does it too. I do it too right now. Like I say, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, who cares? But friends, where is the temple now? 
Um, I can't tell you how many times somebody has asked me, just kind of in passing, you know, they get a moment alone and they're like, hey, let me ask you a question. Whatever happened to David's kingdom? Uh, whatever happened to the, you know, whatever happened to the temple? What, whatever happened to that thing? There's a wall, I know, but uh, whatever happened to the temple? And uh, I want to go, I, I always answer graciously, but I'm like, uh, uh, whatever happened to David's kingdom? I'll tell you, I'm Jesus, <laughs> a savior. That's what happened to David's kingdom. Uh, I mean, we, we know that it's split in half and it was carried off into captivity and the other half was carried off into captivity and they come on back and, and so on. There's this dispersion and so on. Uh, Romans come in and all that. But uh, what happened to David's kingdom is the king came, the promised king, the one to whom it all pointed. When God covenanted with Abraham, he said, I was, was going to make you a, a nation uh, and the, through, through you, the, whole, the peoples will be blessed of the world. Uh, the answer is Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Everything is fulfilled in him. All the sacrifices, all the kings, all the prophets, all the priests, uh, all the Passovers, everything's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what happened in the kingdom. Um, as for the temple, where's the temple? Well, it was destroyed in 70 AD. But I ask you again, where is the temple really? As Christians, where's the temple? You know, Jesus calls the temple his body. That's true. But where is the temple? Here's the temple. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Friends, you are the temple. We are the temple. The church is the temple. That's where the temple is. Jesus dwells in us. The presence of God is where? In believing men and women. The Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence. That's where the temple is. You don't need to go to some special place. And you know, you've heard me harp on contemporary worship songs for years about blah, 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 oh, this place. Oh, what a wonderful place. Oh, we're, we're finally in this place. We're the temple. Now, that is not to discount gathered worship. Yes, we're to come together. There's, there's something profound about gathered worship. It's not, it's not unimportant. It's very important. It's not an option. It's, it's, um, it's mandatory. It's mandatory for our health. It's a means of grace. You don't have a choice. God gathers his people. Um, but but um, that's, that's where the temple is. The kingdom is now. Jesus is now. Jesus has royal subjects now. We now have access to the Father. We call God Father. Jesus is king now. Um, uh, there's a king with subjects. The temple is now. Uh, and we are the living stones. Uh, all right, I close with this. Um, lest we forget our main point. The main point is this. God takes worship very seriously. Um, as I say, um, gathered worship is no small thing. And whenever I hear somebody say, and I've heard someone say it a zillion times, I just don't like organized religion. Let me tell you, I don't think this is an exaggeration. I have never, all right, um, um, perhaps never heard anyone say that who was in a position of spiritual health. I'm just fed up with organized religion. Well, you know what you are? A milk-drinking baby, that's what you are. Because guess who's the head of the church? Christ. Guess who, guess who instituted the church? Christ. It's his church. If you don't like the organized religion, and I don't know I'm fed up with church, and I'm sick of church, you know who you're really sick of? Sick of? Jesus. You're sick of God. And uh, you're a milk-drinking baby. 
Every time I hear somebody say that kind of a thing, God takes worship very seriously, and it's not an option. It's a means of grace. God, God's gathered people uh, eagerly adoring him uh, together is a profound and important and critical thing. And it's not just because I strum a guitar. Uh, by the way, I could give that up and just do this. And you know what? My message would be exactly the same. I know. All right, last thing. I was rummaging around looking for this thing. It's in a file. I can't find it. But um, I, when I first got hired, um, I, I had to go back and sub for whoever was doing senior high at the time. All right, so it was a long time ago. And so I go back to whatever classroom it was in, and our senior high was back in there. And it wasn't like cool rooms like we have now. It was like a you know classroom, well-lit, like a hospital. you know. Um, and so I go in there, and... There were these three senior girls on the front row, and um, they're just a talking and a talking and a talking. And uh, it was one of those things where, you know how your dog uh, will look at you, and it's like, okay, stupid, turn your head. Bah, back to what they're doing. And, you know, they do that. Bleh. Well, that's what they were doing. They were like, every time stupid looks at the Bible, they're, and I look up, and they're, mannequin, you know? And... uh this went on for a while, and I finally stopped, and I said, finish your conversation. Go ahead, finish it, get it over with, and then we'll proceed, blah, 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 blah. Well, this one girl got pretty mad about it. She, she was not happy uh, and uh, just kind of stewed at me the whole rest of the time. You know who it was? Emily Young, Dr. Young's kid, the youngest one. And um, so... 15 years pass, and I get a letter in the mail. It's from Emily. And I mean, this is long forgotten. She's now, you know, a, a woman with, a, with kids, you know. Um, but I get this letter, and uh, she said something. Oh, I, wish I, I, I just wish I could find it. But she said, I just want you to know that that was one of the most precious moments of my life or something like that, how much I appreciated you doing that. She said, the whole time I was sitting there, I was thinking, doesn't he know who I am? And indeed, I didn't know who she was. And guess what? I didn't care who she was. You know why? Because I'm 8% scary. I'm the keeper of the assembly. Um, and, but but all, all that to say, as a mature Christian woman, years later, she's like, thank you, that was awesome. <laughs> because now she understands. All to say, ladies and gentlemen, God cares very much about the right worship of him, and Jesus Christ has himself provided the purity that makes that possible. Uh, we're out of time, uh, but let's close it up there, and we'll pick up next week. Uh, let's pray. Father, um, thank you that um, you have uh, rescued people out of slavery, out of one dominion into freedom so that we can worship you. Uh, that is the point of our living, that's a point of our being saved, is that we can worship you, that we can express our adoration for you, our thanksgiving to you, uh, our appreciation of you, and we do it individually, but we do it as a people too. Oh God, impress that upon our souls. Let us, let us not be fools. Let us not, let, let us not um, deflect um, our... Um, our connectedness to the church, our accountability to you and to, to God's people. Let us not do that, Lord. Let us know that worship is important, um, and uh, all we have to do is observe the Savior. 
We pray all these things in his name. Amen.